Um, I love Tim Ferriss' uh, icebreaker. What did you have for breakfast? So it was a breakfast, Malte. Uh, I don't do breakfast. <laughs> Intermittent fasting? Uh, no, I, I always have a, uh, a chai latte, like a tea with a lot of milk and sugar for breakfast. Um, so it's definitely not uh, fastening that I'm doing. Um, and if I didn't have uh, anything in the evening, I sometimes eat a little bit breakfast, but on a normal day, I don't eat. Huh. Interesting. So you're, you're fully on trend is what you're saying. So for those of you who don't see the video at the moment, Malta is drinking a, a Club Mate, uh, which is a thing in Berlin, uh, and I'm having a coffee. So we're both uh, full of caffeine, ready to rock this conversation. So that's the thing with Club Mate in Berlin. How would you explain that to, to an American or to a foreigner? I've actually uh, tried many times to, to get our, my US colleagues hooked on it. Um, and from time to time, we bring a case to our US office. Um, I always describe it as uh, something you don't like, but after I force you a couple of times to drink it, you will start to like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Germans show their love. They force you to do something until you like it. <laughs> I mean, it's the same with um, beer. Almost nobody likes the first beer that they drink or um, coffee, like because it's like bitter and then many people don't like it. It's the same with Marta. The first couple of ones are really not that great, but... At some point, you are you are hooked. <laughs> At some point, you're hooked. Yeah, I, I, I think you're actually right. Um, I didn't like my first beer. And I was born and raised in a, in a beer region in Germany, in the very western part, where they make Bitburger. I, I was actually, I grew up five minutes from Bitburg. So heavily influenced by beer and wine. Um, but then I think you see your parents drink beer or wine. And then uh, I think that's what kind of instills that, that idea of, of mimicking it. And then... First times you just don't like it, you push through it, as you said, and then you're you're on the train and like 20 years later, you still have way too much coffee every day. <laughs> well, so, I don't do coffee. That's that's why I need the matter and the tea. <laughs> ah, got it. Why, why are you not doing coffee? Um, I hate the taste of it. Like I've tried yeah. it like three times and once it was a milk coffee, coffee with a lot of milk and once it was some kind of latte drink with even more milk. But I just don't like the coffee. Hmm. Uh, That's so fair. I need I need the matter. So you're telling me that you push through this desire, this human desire of mimicking your parents drinking coffee. Do you drink beer? Uh, yes, I do. I do. Okay. What's, what's your What's your favorite? What kind of What beer guy are you? Um, I'm anything but IPA to be honest <laughs> yeah. yeah there's this whole trend going on here in the bay area with microbreweries um and they have a ton of IPAs but man like i'm sure there's some really good beer here there actually is but a lot of these IPAs are well hoppy way too hoppy like they need some some you know like german purity laws for beer brewing here in the us yeah, I, I had a couple of good beers in the U.S. from some microbreweries, but I forgot the names. But, um, I mean, if you're used to the beer prices in Germany and you go to the U.S. Uh, yes. <laughs> you, I mean, I just I can just order a cocktail if I want to pay like $6 for one, <laughs> one beverage. Yeah, it's okay, man. You pay about 15 to 20 bucks for a glass of wine here in the Bay Area. It's completely. For those of you who don't know, uh, Malte Landwehr is the VP of product at Searchmetrics, um, and we're both from Germany, and I've been stalking, aka following Malte's career for a long time, 
uh, I remember when when I started, that was 10 years ago, uh, you were already like a, a major expert in the scene uh, and you were you were a huge household name. Yeah, you can deny this as, <laughs> as much as you want, but that's the reality. You were definitely on the radar. And whenever I heard your name, people were speaking highly of you. Um, and so before we dive deeper into your, your background, and I kind of want to make this like this episode focus a little bit on your transition out of SEO. But for people to understand really why that's important and why that's so interesting, I actually want to talk about your past in SEO. So um, you started as a blogger, um, you founded an SEO agency, uh, you were like a major expert. And I'm, I'm curious as of like, how did you, you don't, you don't have to give me the whole spiel, but how did you fall into SEO and, and um when did you start thinking about transitioning out of SEO? Let's start there. Okay, so how did I get started? Um, as long as I can remember, I wrote stuff, put it uh, in HTML and put it on the web. Like, uh, I don't know, I think I had my first website with, with 14. Obviously, nobody ever visited it. And I hope there's no back off of it anywhere. Um, around 16, I had like my first interactive website, like a forum where my friends from school could register and we would plan what to do on the weekend. And then people started registering there, that, but it was people whom I didn't tell the exact URL. So I was confused, like how did they find my, my forum? Like what's going on here? And uh, that's why I, how I discovered um, this thing called a log file where you can see your referrals. And then you can find out that they come from Google. So I started like searching stuff. Uh, how, how do people find my website on Google? Um, and then that's how I discovered PageRank and these kinds of concepts. And then I, I took it from there. Uh, at some point, I realized that if I have traffic, I could show them ads and make money. But um, I wasn't 18, so I dreamt up a tax ID to register with um, <laughs> some of these services. <laughs> you dreamt up, wait, you dreamt up a tax ID? So you would get a I, fake tax ID? I, 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 I Googled one and then I changed a few digits. Wow, um, now I cannot publish this. We have to I, cut until here. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's more than, it was more than 15 years ago. It's totally fine. Um, <laughs> And I never made any serious money when I was 16. Come on, it was only to, okay. to register there. And okay. um, then I realized that when I write about um, hotels in my region, for some reason, I make more money with the ads than when I write about the party my friends and I went to. And yeah, suddenly I was running this regional website for the city I was uh, living in. Um, when I had the wrong date for some um, public attractions, uh, actually the mayor called me and told me <laughs> that um, <laughs> it's true. There was um, a very famous ice skating rig and I had the wrong uh, time time slots on my website for when they opened. So um, a whole class of students went there an hour too early and had to wait an hour. And, <laughs> and they said, wow, but I got the time from the internet. They ranked number one. It must be the official website. And then the mayor called me and told me to change it. That's when nice. I realized like, that, hey, this, this SEO stuff, <laughs> this could go somewhere. Um, that's interesting. It's like you, you were like the Batman of the little town. And the mayor was calling you saying, Malta, the city needs you to update the times for this event. It, it was a little bit like that, yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs> already famous. So let's take a quick step back. So how did you, so you said you always enjoyed putting things into HTML. 
and uploading them on the web. Like, how how did you get to that point? Like, what instilled that wish? I don't really know. I was a nerdy teenager and like sitting in front of my computer and trying stuff. And when I when I press a button and then I hit refresh in the other window and it looks different, that was cool. But um, <laughs> it is cool. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, it was not intended to start a career. It was just like uh, playing around with a with a computer, and um, it was important to my dad that when I have a computer or we had a family computer. I mean, when I was thirteen, uh, that I don't just play with it; that I learn something. So I did. That's really smart. Uh, it actually sounds a lot like my upcoming or how I discovered SEO was pretty much the same thing, right? From computer games and then creating a website for our little uh, gaming clan or little gaming group. And then that's it was the same thing where I wondered where are people coming from. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting how many people kind of fell into SEO. And I feel like nowadays we're at a point where maybe somebody, like where SEO is a bit more prominent and people might actually deliberately learn it. But I think back then everybody just fell into it like by accident, right? And then, okay, fast forward a couple of years, you decide to to start an SEO agency called SEO Factory. How did you, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, so at that point, I had uh, properly incorporated on my own because I was uh, finally 18, um, was going to university, studying computer science, um, running a couple of uh, more or less successful affiliate sites. And um, yeah, actually I was uh, in, invited from some members of the, um, I lived in Münster to go to university from members of the, the Münster SEO uh, roundup, whatever, meetup. And uh, they are like, hey, let's found an SEO agency. And I was like, no, thanks. I <laughs> didn't go to the meeting. And, and then there was a second meeting. And I was again, no, like, don't bother me. I want to go to university. And um, the day before the event, actually, I know the day of the event, uh, um, a friend of mine, um, whom I've known for a while, contacted me like, hey, are you coming? I was like, no, like, I don't want to found an SEO agency. And, but he convinced me to come and we actually had a really great idea. Um, so there was this shortage of SEOs back then. Um, and we said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We, we're going to found an SEO agent. We're going to raise some money. We're going to found an SEO agency. We're going to do an internship for in... Um, on um, on Crete for six <laughs> months, where we rent um, a whole um, like a holiday vacation village, do um, training with people, um, let companies also send some people really like do do really great SEO internship or SEO apprenticeship or however we call it, and afterwards we use all these uh, newly trained junior SEOs to find to to found. A really large agency in Germany with um, offices in the five most important cities, uh, and we're gonna offer SEO, PPC, and web analytics. And let's do it. And um, we had a complete business plan. Um, all the roles were assigned. Um, and then there was this this uh, this financial crisis, so all the investors pulled out. Um, and then we said, you know what? Let's just do it on our own. Um, so we took our own money. Uh, most of the experts that were on board said, no, no, no. If you don't have investor, you are out, you are out. So suddenly I was like one of the only experts left. 
and, and, and I was, uh, I think, head of SEO or something was my title. And, and I was 22 at that time, right? I was like still <laughs> mainly going to university. And I also, I didn't want to take like a, a break from university. But we did, um, we recruited, I think, 35 interns, went with them to Crete uh, for three months, uh, did this SEO internship and um, had some really good speakers like ex-Google ex people, um, people from all the large affiliate web websites, affiliate networks. Um, and actually some of these interns nowadays, they work at some of the largest SEO agencies in Germany. Uh, one of them works at Google. Like, Thanks to this, I, I learned a lot about business at a very young age. Um, and I also built a huge uh, network of people where I can say, oh yeah, that person learned SEO from me 10 years ago. Um, but we, we founded the whole thing with six people. Um, I was the youngest at 22. Um, the oldest was, I think, 45. And um, we were at very different points in our lives. Uh, some of us said, I need this to be my, my full-time paying job. Uh, I was like, I make my money with my affiliate websites. I, I'm, I'm a student. I don't have any cost. Um, I don't need money from this. All the money we make, we should reinvest in the company. So we had very different opinions. So after like half a year, the whole thing broke apart. Um, we could salvage the rest more or less, but um, it turned into an, an in-house SEO team for a um, for the companies of one of the founders who had like um, a vacation rental company, and that he sold that business. He was he was fine. Um, I got the money back that I invested, but I made zero profit out of the whole thing. Um, I just learned a ton, um, especially about the separation of business and friendship. And uh, just because people say they're gonna do X doesn't mean they're gonna do X. And um, yeah, I've become, uh, I had to grow up business-wise very quickly. Before that, I was like completely oblivious to, to most of the business aspects of SEO. Like I was spending, I don't know, $5 a month for hosting and was making $500 per website and I was happy and I thought I'd figured it all out. But it uh, <laughs> turns out I was just a stupid 22-year-old who still needed to learn a lot. That doesn't sound so stupid to me. Uh, but it's funny because I know that um, I know a, lot, a couple of those people that came out of this uh, trip to Crete, which is on Greece, for those uh, who don't know, beautiful island. Um, um, and I also know some of the crazy stories that happened there, <laughs> but we're not going to go into those. <laughs> I know some. I'm sure there's so much more. Anyway, uh, I'm going to leave Maybe. that open and never, never uh, close I, I, this in the, I, I, in the show. I, I, I know some of the people you know, yeah. It's fascinating, though, because so many people that helped me come up in SEO back then in Germany were in this program or, or did this kind of internship on, on uh, Crete. So it's kind of all connected in Germany. Uh, which I feel like still is um, the case. Um, and it's partially probably because Germany is a bit smaller than the U.S. Uh, but it's, it's you know, other than, than most things in Germany, it's not that fragmented, right? Like you have the SEO Campix, which is this this SEO conference that, that most people go to every year in Berlin, right? Um, and so I don't think, I think there's so, there's so many touch points uh, for the SEO scene to have, um, to have where they frequently come together and so many shared things in the past. So that's kind of fascinating. But you said that a couple of the things you learned are 
that only because people are gonna or saying they're gonna do X, they're not gonna do X. Can you can you elaborate on that? Don't don't don't, don't wanna mention. <laughs> but you, you can keep it generic, you know. Like, how, what did you learn about people doing what they say, uh, and how does that help you in your job nowadays? Um, I don't know if it helps me in my job nowadays, but I mean, with six founders and like a seventh person saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna invest soon. Uh, I'm gonna join as a founder." Um, I was just very naive and thought, okay, they said they're going to invest 100,000, so next month they're going to have 100,000 more, and then it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen the next month, and it doesn't happen the next month, and suddenly they're like, oh, uh, my wife is pregnant again, I don't want to start a new venture, bye. Um, or, <laughs> I mean, which is fine, right? People's uh, personal circumstances change and everything, and I'm still friends with that person. Um and but there were there were also people with whom I would never again uh, work together. And uh, people do weird things when they they think they're somebody attacked their their work ego. And uh, especially once it once it's about money, you can put friendship down the drain. Oh, totally. And I feel like so many people have a story to tell about that. So it's a major topic that probably deserves its own kind of show or podcast or video or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a really good learning, especially when you make it early on, I feel like. Um, so you being 22, going through all of that has probably majorly benefited you, you know, moving forward with a career. It, yeah. Do you feel like, oh, go ahead, please. Uh, I would also say it made me more uh, humble. Like I, I realized that only because I have figured out this SEO thing and can rank my own affiliate sites. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily great at teaching 30 people how to do SEO, um, which was a huge learning for me. And um, especially like being involved with some of our customers and prospects made me realize that most of the SEO challenges that people have in the business world are actually completely unrelated to whether the keyword must be in H1 or H2. But the problem is more like budget, headcounts, priority, um, internal communications, these kinds of things where, to be honest, I wasn't really able to help back then. And nowadays, uh, if I were to do SEO consulting ever again, I would probably allocate 90% of my effort to that kind, kind of things and only 10% to the actual technical audit and implementation, because in yes. the end, it's just about getting the basics right. and yeah. and the hard work is in, in stakeholder alignment and, and strategy and stuff. Preach. You couldn't say it any better. Uh, totally speaks my mind here. Uh, to me, SEO is, is majorly or mainly an execution problem and not a knowledge problem. Uh, so I, I think you're 100% on the money. Uh, and it always cracks me up when people ask for the latest hack and trick and something. And, you know, like you, you deep down, you know, having been through this, that the biggest needle mover is just more resources, more stakeholder alignment, more backup, right? Evangelization of SEO. Those are, that, that's what really moves the needle, right? Um, so, okay. Um, fast forward again. So you've been through this whole kind of SEO journey, uh, had some, you know, like learned a lot about the business side of it as well, established yourself as an expert. And then what, what, what was the point when you said to yourself, maybe I should step out of SEO? And I think this is kind of, this is the, the 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 key here of this whole conversation between you and I, because I feel like every SEO that has some 
some skinner than nails, right? That that has some experience, regularly plays with the thought of getting out of SEO, right? And I think, and this this is just my theory, that it is because SEO is such a meta layer on top of other things, right? It's not really its own type of thing. It's something that you put on top of other things. So a, a lot of people who deal with SEO, um, from like who are really doing SEO, they come to a point where they realize that they could do something else and still take their SEO learnings with them and and establish, you know, like um, be, become an expert in something else that ha- that is a bit more tangible and less this kind of this set of guidelines and rules. So. What was the point for you when you told yourself, man, I want to I want to develop further. I want to I want to step out of this. So actually, for me, it was more like I was interested in something else. And then afterwards, I found tons of arguments why it's the right thing. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, even when I was doing only SEO, I was always interested in trying out new things. And um, I mean, I was actually I was not just doing SEO. I was also doing lots of social media and uh with real and with fake accounts on Twitter. Yeah. And, um, or oh, you don't know my fake account stories. <laughs> I have no idea, but I have a strong feeling that I want to know right now. <laughs> um, do you know the show in Germany, uh, Germany's Next Top Model? Yes. Uh, what, what's the English name? Um, Honestly, I think they, they, it's like a franchise, I think. I think they have something similar in the US the same and Great right, Britain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so I, I was that Twitter account. Um, and I was wait, wait. You, you were the Twitter account for Germany's yeah, Next at, Top Model? At, at GNTM, I just registered it. And when, uh, wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. You saw that this show was coming, and then you were like, oh, those fools are going to miss registering the Twitter. Oh, no, no, no. it was already in the second season or something, and the account was still <laughs> free. So I registered it, and Heidi Klum, the host, she retweeted it. All the TV shows retweeted it. Some uh, newspapers uh, referenced it. Like, actually, there's an employee at the TV show who wrote in the, no, in the, I don't know what's it called, these, when they print it on paper that you read the TV program. I mean, I don't know who actually still uses it. But in the official notes, there was, uh, you can also follow the show along on the Twitter account. Um, <laughs> when they show one, one awards, the agency, the agency, Scholz and Friends, one of the most well-known agencies in Germany, they, re- they mentioned the account as having won the award. And it was it was hilarious. Um, I had a lot of fun. And I actually, <laughs> I, I set up a system so that multiple people could access the account at the same time without knowing the password. So I had a group of three female friends. They would always watch the show together and drink champagne. And I gave them access to this account to live tweet during the show. And it was magical. You wrote a tweet and in less than one minute, you had like 100 retweets, mentions and likes. Because all the all the fans watching it were like waiting for tweets <laughs> from the official account, um, I had had a lot of fun. I also had all the Twitter accounts for all the uh, soccer clubs in the first and second Bundesliga. Um, had up Jesus. to I think twenty thousand followers per account, and I had a lot of fun back then. I also had um, the Google Webmaster Blog account. Um, and I, I lost it after I tweeted an affiliate link to a link seller. <laughs> <laughs> that is a crazy story. Uh, another one of those crazy stories, man. I feel like we got to do more shows together. So how did you monetize this whole Twitter? Um, I don't want to call it a scheme. It's not technically a scheme, but... A, a lot was just for fun, which is mainly my point. Most of these things, when I could prove, okay, there's a way to make money and I have fun, I stopped doing it and did the next thing because... 
I was young, I didn't need the money, I didn't think about getting rich quick and investing it. Nowadays, I think how stupid, should have made the money, <laughs> buy, some, buy some stocks, and now I would be well off. Um, but no, I, I was, I like to challenge myself. And for the soccer accounts, um, Amazon affiliate links, whenever there was good weather, because for every soccer club, there is a barbecue set in their colors. And I would Twitter the affiliate link to Amazon. Nice. And nice, back man. then, there was this feature in Google that they would show the latest tweets in the SERP when there was a query deserves freshness thing going on. So I tweeted that and yeah. Nice. Oh, man. Anyway. So I no, 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 that was a great story. Thanks for telling that. That was that was amazing. It's it's funny how many shady things come to my mind when I think of having such power. And I, I, you know, I think it's very honorable that you just did this for fun and you're like, hey, I'm trying this out because my brain really goes to, hmm, what can I do with any redirects and cookie drops and all these kind of things? But man, no, kudos, kudos for not exploiting all the the 13 year old girls who were watching Germany Next Top Models. I was also the linked star on Twitter, if you remember that one. Yes, I do remember that one, actually. Yeah. You have a crazy, crazy Twitter <laughs> history. Are all these accounts banned now? Or what did you do with those accounts? Um, so some of them I sold. Um, and a lot of them I renamed. Um, I had a source that told me, hey, somebody's aware that there are a lot of fake accounts in Germany. Maybe watch it. Uh, and I actually lost some of the soccer accounts. Um, and then I renamed all of them to like weird topics where I happened a ran had a random affiliate website. And I also have a folder full of screenshots from 10 years ago where people then complain like, why am I following this weird account? Uh, I think somebody, <laughs> I think somebody sold their soccer account. This is so weird uh, because I had weird affiliate websites. So don't want to mention the topics, but lots of lots of stuff. Anyways. Oh, yeah. We were coming to, um, uh, I think, why I why I wanted to get out of SEO. Um, so I, I felt like I had done it all and uh, it was all fun. But I also didn't see myself um, doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Like I needed a challenge. And um, for a time I thought, hey, university is going to be that challenge. So I started a, um, a PhD. In, in computer science, um, I did some nice research projects for um, Vodafone, IBM, Microsoft. Um, the, the university had really great partners. Um, I, I did some interesting Twitter scraping and social network analysis things. Um, I once presented it to the university. And uh, the first question was if the, if the CIA had already approached us because <laughs> we were Like, like one of the systems I built um, based on Facebook groups and friendships, I could tell you which students were falling behind in the semester. Um, and, <laughs> It's um, even worse I, than Cambridge Analytica, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I manually uh, uh, de-anonymized the web, the network. Um, but if the university had given me access to a register of all students and their subjects and like I could have had some more fun, but they said no for ethical reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, but then I realized that academia is not for me. Like I, I like to, to analyze data in depth and, and not do it for profit, like, but to, to come up with like insights, but, um, 
a lot of it was just about um, getting the data for uh, getting the getting the grant, getting the research money, then doing like the bare minimum and using your time efficiently on on other things. And it's that that's not me. Like if I do something, I do it all in, um, and I, I I don't start 15 projects just to finance uh, uh, 10 other people who who work at the university. Sorry for this little drop-off. Uh, Skype just left us and crashed in the middle of our conversation. Uh, I'm sure you said something really smart and really intriguing. So thanks for nothing, Skype. <laughs> uh, do you remember where we left off? Yeah, you said a couple of smart things about uh, how to be uh, data-informed instead of data-driven. And I was just about to say that I, I think the same thing. So you you should look at a lot of data and the different kinds of data, like tracking what people actually do in your product, but also talking to them, understanding their needs. And I think um, if you're completely data-driven, you will always only build a small increment and another small increment and another small increment. But for the like big improvements, you actually need to take a step back, look at what, what actually are the problems that my users are trying to solve, which often is not what they want. What, yeah. what users want is to be able to save five clicks in their workflow. What you can actually do for them is automating the workflow, but nobody thinks about that. And um, I mean, there's this saying from Henry Ford, if I had asked my clients what they want, they would have said uh, faster horses instead he built cars. Um, and I think that's very much the reality. Like for the for the big stuff, you need to need to develop a really deep understanding of your users or your target users which might not even be your current users, and then just, just build. And if you 100% believe that your vision is right, you can be like Apple, and you can decide what's flash. I hate it. I will not support it. You can say, what's, what's, what's a jack for the speaker? I, I hate it. I will not support it. And um, I mean, they were right in both things. So now, a few years later, everybody else also stopped supporting flash. Samsung just released their first line of smartphones without a headphone jack. So so Apple was was right in, in what they said, but I think very few brands manage again and again and again and again to be right. It's a very rare thing. And um, yeah, you need to you need to be really visionary to pull that off. And that's where then it makes sense to be more data informed. Um, and listening more to people and, and understanding their needs and understanding their problems. Yeah, absolutely right. And so the question that, that I immediately asked myself when you mentioned that is how do you get better at creating that vision? How do you feed your gut instinct uh, or your gut feeling to create a great product? There has to be some stuff that you do on a regular basis that helps you get there. It's interesting. We actually just went through an exercise of uh, defining our product strategy. Um, so a little bit of background, maybe in the past, it was driven by the founder of this company, Marcus Tober. Um, but he switched to a more non-daily business role and as like chief innovation officer. So I'm now in my role as VP product and many other people have stepped up and, and taken on part of his responsibilities. And one of the things we did together was coming up with um, a product strategy for the next three to five years. Um, I try to say for the next five years, and it's less scary what we, <laughs> what we want to do. Um, 
but um, we we use two different approaches. So one is we we used um, a canvas approach. So there are there's like 15 different like canvases for ideas, for features, for businesses, and we just pick one and we filled it out. I would say 60 times with different ideas, and I mean we did this as a group, sure. and then then always talked about okay what's 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 a good idea here. Um, looking and then of course looked at our current financials and the desire where we want to be and we we threw away a lot of ideas but there were also a lot of things that we said hey yeah let's let's do this let's fund this and um, that helped us a lot to find the right direction and whenever there was like an area where we thought hey really not sure what we need to do here you do 10 canvases you do 10 canvases let's meet next week and um, we, we actually did it and we spent spent a lot of management attention on it um, up to the CEO and um, it really paid off. Like it, it helped us a lot to define uh, what we want to do. And in parallel, we did another thing, um, like a, fr a framework from some ex-McKinsey consultants about analyzing strengths and weaknesses of a company. And basically that way with these, with these bottom-up canvas approach and the top-down um, um, model from from the McKinsey guys, we we kind of like found our yeah our vision and our strategy and and what we want to do. And um, we also had some ex some some external experts provide like their take on what are the current and future trends on SEO and content marketing. We ask our internal experts like myself, what do we see as the future trends? And um, combined all of that, and it took us half a year. But um, actually, um, it's it's a Monday right now, and uh, this week there's a call with the whole company to reveal it internally to to everyone. Um, what nice. we, they what can reveal to us. I'm not going to publish before you're going to. Uh, <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> no, totally kidding, totally kidding. But to, on a serious note, I think this is actually freaking hard. Vision strategy is so hard, which is probably why so many people talk about tactics because it's so much more tangible. Um, and I found myself in a, in a similar spot where I now am in a much more strategic position and had to come up with a vision for my teams. And it it sounds it sounds so easy in theory, or it looks so easy in theory, right? Like, yeah, you just imagine some uh, scenario in the future, and then you know you will describe it. It's like, yeah, no, it's not actually that's not enough, right? Like, <laughs> I, I totally understand why you why it took you half a year to come up with that. It's it's a really hard hard thing to do. And not only that, but this vision has to be robust, right? It's going to de define the roadmap for the next three to five years. So um, you can't just dream something up. You have to actually um, think it all the way through. Um, and I, I personally love, like, I find this very intriguing. But what helps you? So I'm curious in your day-to-day -day kind of work and routine. Um, what are some of the tools that you use in your role as VP of product? And um, what are maybe some of the tools that you're still missing or where you find workarounds? You mean software tools or processes? Both, both. Um, so software-wise, um, Jira, Jira and Confluence. Um, as a former Atlassian guy, <laughs> you might appreciate that. <laughs> Noted. Um, no, seriously, that's um, they are perfect for what they, they need to do. Um, and especially documenting things in Confluence, like even little things where everybody assumes like we know what we do, how we do it. But like we, 
last month, this month, we, we are onboarding a lot of new people in product and development. And it's so helpful if you just write down for each engineering team, how do they do the retro? How do they do the planning one? How do they do planning two? Do they even do planning one and planning two? Uh, how do they do grooming? Like just having it all written down, it makes it so easy to onboard new employees. Um, like we had um, three changes in the product management team and I ended up temporarily being a product owner actually for two sprints for one team, which I'm normally not. But since everything was written down, it was so easy. Like we started the meeting and in theory, nobody of us would have needed to know anything about how in this team grooming is done. But we look at the confluence for this team. Ah, this is how we do it. Okay, let's do it. And um, it's so helpful for new people. It's so helpful for people who switch between teams or for people who are like part of multiple teams because they have more like an architect or consultant role. Um, super helpful for product managers who do like um, stepping in when somebody is sick or on vacation. Um, that's super, super helpful. Um, of course, Jira for tracking epics and everything. Um, visualizing a roadmap is, is, I think, super important. Yeah. And then also sharing this roadmap internally um, with everyone in the company is very important. And um, they're especially making it clear for, for the people who are not part of product or development what part of the roadmap is like properly groomed and planned out and what is just like a, a space holder bar, a placeholder bar that could also end up being three times as long, but could also end up being a lot shorter. Um, and when you do that, um, I think that's super helpful. And we do it by giving some key stakeholders access to our roadmap permanently. Um, and uh, we also do like quarterly internal roadmap meetings where we always present this is what we want to do in the next uh, three months. We already show some click dummies, some concepts. Um, also show what we're doing on the technical side. Um, like we often have to do work that doesn't end up being visible in the product, but it's super important um, because there are some databases that we use to their limits. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happens when you deal with big data, right? If you want to change something, you're like, okay, how much does this, how much will, how long will this take? Oh, transferring this data to the new database will take three months. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> interesting. Yes, yes, I remember that uh, at Searchmetrics. I know Searchmetrics has a, a, like insane databases and insane historical data, uh, probably some of the best in the game for sure. And I remember some of these conversations and I remember how doing the ranking factor studies back in the days and how much data that was. So there, yeah. That is a major implication that I think a lot of people from the outside don't appreciate or are not aware of, right? They're like, oh, why don't why can't you just change this feature? And it's like, yeah, um, there's a ton of stuff attached to this. It doesn't go that that far or that well. Um, but I also love how you mentioned Confluence because that was actually one of the biggest, um, I wouldn't even call it a tip, but uh, one of the best things that I did. So at Elastin, I saw how when Confluence, or you can call it an internal wiki or whatever you want to attach it. It doesn't have to be Confluence itself, right? But when you have this kind of um, digital brain incorporated in a company and what that can do. Um, at Atlassian, you were able to 
read blog posts from the founders from 15 years ago, right? So it, there's so many benefits that it would, it would take me probably the whole day to just go through all of them, but every company should do this. Every company should have something like a confluence or a, you know, a way to document things and communicate. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just going back and understanding how the company grew and what the mindset was back then, there's so, so much you can learn from this. And so that's what one of the first things that I did at G2 was bring something like that in, that people document um, and make people write things down. Because not only do you think about things more and more in depth when you write them down, you also internalize them. So there's this saying that I read somewhere um, that said uh, writing something down is like... Um, learn like saying it out loud seven times or something like that it's just in terms of how well you're able to memorize it but then also it it's clear communication right that's what i love about it communication is so hard and if seo means is or is mainly about getting things done then it's you know it's also a lot about communicating clearly which is not as easy as it sounds and so that was just one of the, uh, the reasons for why i love an internal kind of wiki that that forces you to document and put things into writing and so um, one question that came up was, what did you learn about, what, you, what did you take away from your, um, time as an actual, actual pr practitioner for your, for your job nowadays? Now, obviously you're, you're also part of the, the target group cause you are an SEO expert. So it makes perfect sense for you to take over product, but what did you learn, um, in terms of like the way you think and you do, the way you approach things from SEO for product? I mean, the way I did SEO was always looking at data and trying to, to come up with something, either finding like the secret ranking factor in an industry <laughs> or just like scraping some data and presenting it in a different way for content marketing purposes. Um, but um, I mean, I also had custom plugins developed for my WordPress sites. Um, and of course, there I was basically doing product management, right? I was like writing a yeah. specification finding a cheap developer in Indonesia, sending to him what I want. He would get back to me. I would iteratively provide feedback. Um, I wouldn't say I did any kind of Kanban or Scrum, but I basically wrote some kind of user story, right? Yeah. And um, this is actually what many SEOs do, like technical SEOs. And that's the, that's the perfect foundation for, for product management in my, my experience. And uh, I actually have one product manager on my team who, who used to be an SEO. And um, in, the, in the interview, it turned out he was already familiar with, for example, writing Jira tickets because um, that's what he did as a yeah. technical SEO, right? He would, he would crawl the website, look at some things, and then make uh, recommendations how to change most of the time the template or the internal links. And um, that is what part of the product management work is all about. Man, I can hear like a thousand technical SEOs uh, in front of the computer shouting, hurrah, he's saying it, he's admitting it, he's right. And I think you totally <laughs> are, uh, 100%. Uh, th that, that fits my kind of theory that SEO is, or it's not my theory, right? But that kind of feeds the fact that SEO is so much about product. Um, but I've also encountered the complete opposite. So um, one of the smartest SEOs I know, I, I will not say her name, um, she um, said she doesn't want to get into product because she she tried it and uh, she she can't handle the stress of uh, the developers uh, coming back, <laughs> pushing back on the tickets, having questions for clarification. And I mean, that's also part of being a product manager. You need to be able to, um, you need to be a storyteller, like 
and an educator, you need to convince people why your tickets are important or why the whole the whole epic you're working on is important. And when people have questions, you need to need to answer them. And um, when people have assumed that they have knowledge and are subject matter experts, but are actually not, then of course it's the hardest challenge, right? Because then you need to, in a friendly manner, tell them that you know better or the external experts you ask know better and this is how it should be and this is how it works. And um, of course, that's a challenge for many people. And um, I mean, of course, I also believe many, many SEOs should switch into product long term. Um, I've actually seen some really good examples of, of that happening. But um, it's not for everyone. No, I'm sure it's not. You're absolutely right. I love how you pointed out that good product people have to be storytellers. Um, I 100% I believe this. I actually believe everybody has to be a good storyteller. It's probably part of sales, right? But to be not too philosophical, uh, I think there's a very tangible benefit of actually dissecting what storytelling is for product people. Um, not Not even only internally, but also externally when you market the product. That's where I see the, the lines between marketing and product blurring. And that's you know where I see there's a strong case for growth. But anyway, um, don't want to drift into all of these avenues. But a lot of the things that you said are actually much deeper and there's a lot more to them than we could handle in this conversation. But um, maybe, maybe we can quickly touch up on stories. Um, what is your kind of we don't have to take this super far, but what is your kind of high-level framework for telling stories? Like, how do you approach this, or how do you tell a good story and product? Honestly, I don't have a framework. I, um, since I'm also an subject matter expert, um, and since I'm used to telling stories, and I'm I'm used to using data for my assumptions, I, I it just comes naturally to me. Um, which is a problem because it means I don't have a process that I can easily analyze and optimize or teach to others. Um, but I've never really thought about it a lot. Like normally I just tell people, okay, look, here's the problem. Here's how I think we should solve it. Please keep in mind to never take my, take my word for like the truth. Here's a couple of internal stakeholders you talk to. Please verify this with five customers. Go. Um, like I actually have the reverse problem that I sometimes need to tell people to not just do something because the idea came from me. Like um, <laughs> I, I actually stopped reporting bugs in my name because then for some reason the ticket is super high priority, even though I was just like, no, yes. I meant like when we have time, let's do it. It's, it's not <laughs> blocking a customer. It's not a priority. Um so yeah, but I to answer the I can't really answer the the question on how to how to best tell stories and how to approach that with a framework. Sure. I'm 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 pretty convinced that you probably have one, you just can't point it out, but probably you internalize it over all these years and it's there subconsciously. So I'm pretty sure you have an approach, but um anyway, so you're on the other side, right? Um a lot of SEOs are really curious about what they can learn from you about better working with products like what should what what is the thing that seos don't know that you can tell from the other side that they should be aware of so how seos can work together with product better yeah um, yeah like how, how do they take, fail on a continuous take, basis take take your product manager out to lunch <laughs> step number one right. um, step number two is actually join um planning and grooming so unless the product manager knows seo themselves 
they will not be able to tell the engineers all the details in the grooming. So you need to be there. You need to exactly explain what should be done and also be there in the planning because if an, all the engineers ask, why is this important? Why should we do it this sprint? And you are not there. Maybe the product manager will fight for your ticket. Maybe not. Um, and I think that's the, that's the most important uh, thing to become, become part of the sprint. I mean, the, the development team needs to accept it. If yeah. you if you enforce this, you have a problem, um, and then um, definitely have buy-in from chief product officer, chief technology officer, or VP engineering, VP product. Um, these kinds of people, because if you don't have the buy-in, if you are just like, ah, that's one of the guys who was sent by marketing, we're gonna ignore him. Um, <laughs> you you have already lost. Yeah, you can do it like the club mods in the beginning. You force them as long as they until, until they like it. <laughs> That's that's not how I would um, uh, recommend anybody behave in the Come business on. world. I'm sure I'm sure there are companies where you can do it, but um, <laughs> that's that's not my recommendation. It's worth a try. No, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. But I agree. It's it's a really good point and a good learning, good lesson for for myself. Yeah. And, and to, I think uh, more of the meetings. Also, also important is to um, understand how user stories are written in that company because everybody has a different style and to just write your tickets just in that way and um, not come up with your own definition of what the user story should look like. But um, when you look at how they, how they do it normally for their other technical topics. And um, if you have to decide between providing too much or too little context, always go for too much. Even if it's a super simple thing and you think the user story in itself makes it obvious what the acceptance criteria is, click on acceptance criteria and write down what the acceptance criteria is. So that it's like really super clear for everyone who, even when you are not in the room and they read it, they understand what is what is meant. And I think that also ties back nicely to, to how to document knowledge inside of a company. Um, because I've also realized that when you write um, meeting notes on every meeting, which is super helpful, um, one of the important things is to think about somebody who doesn't have any context and reads this, do they get it or not? And that's yeah. what you should also think about when you write your tickets. Like, don't assume that somebody is working on this with whom you had a meeting the week before explaining for two hours what you want to do. Assume that somebody gets this. It's completely out of context. They don't know about your new, I don't know, tagging strategy and the new framework for information architecture. They just have a task to, I don't know, put the link to the five most related tags or something and, and make it clear that they can, can grasp what they need to do on an, the level of a task, the level of a ticket. Um, that's, that's the best advice I can give. Yeah, totally. It comes back to clear communication, right? But it's, I love that you point out that people should think about the context of providing all the context. It's, most of the time, it's not that hard. And you don't have to write a ton. It's just catching people from zero, right? Or, or uh, um, basically introducing them from from scratch to, to a certain situation. So that's super helpful. Um, and I think there's an ongoing challenge that I see uh, is the conversation between SEO and product because in most cases, SEO is under marketing, which I think is a mistake for most companies, yes. especially when they scale um through SEO, right? Like any sort of marketplace or e-commerce site, social network, publishers, if, like any any site. If, if SEO is one of your growth channels, 
Yeah. And it's not a growth channel because you are a large brand that is abusing an underserved market. Um, SEO absolutely should be in product management. Like there should be product managers for SEO. Maybe you also have a content SEO team in marketing that works with content marketing, uh, social media. But um, the tech SEO should be part of, of product management. And I've actually seen one company, they are customers, so I can't name the name. But their, their SEO visibility was flatlining for like two and a half years. And the month they moved the, the SEO team from marketing to product, the SEO visibility <laughs> started to, to grow. Yeah, because um, yeah, Google knows where the SEOs are in the organization. <laughs> no, no first they, uh, they got one, two, three, I don't know how many engineering teams. And um, funnily enough, they spent a lot of their time and resources on improving the user experience of the landing pages that are not ranking well. Um, so right. it was not about like putting the keyword in the title. It was about, oh, we have this. 3 million landing pages with really shitty bounce rate. Let's maybe look at the, type, uh, the template and improve it. And um, <laughs> that's, that's what they did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I 100% agree. I think the probably one of the best hacks for most companies out there to double their organic traffic is to just give dedicated developer resources to some SEOs, right? Um, make them a growth team or in best case, right, include them in the main product team. But even if you just like create a growth team with a couple of dedicated resources, you can do so much. I know so many SEOs that if they had their own resources, they would kill it and probably two or three or four X organic traffic. Uh, but then reality is that in, in most companies, the the product team just asks for some SEO guidelines or just as, explain SEO to our developers, but it, it just does not work like that. You can't just offload a set of, um, rules and guidelines and articles on a product team and make them successful in SEO. You have to have a dedicated person thinking about SEO, driving those things forward, testing and iterating, right? I think also the whole kind of idea of testing becomes more important for SEO, blah, blah, blah. Like there's so much to say about that. Um, but um, I, I love that you that you point this out, right? Um, documenting, um, including SEO under product, and then, um, yeah, just, just embracing embracing growth within a product team, I think is also super important. So um, what is something that's, um, so talk about what SEOs can kind of learn from product. What is something that, um, how should I phrase this question, um, that you think more product people should kind of, what, what have you learned um, in your time under products that would be really beneficial for other, other product people to learn in terms of SEO without going to SEO tactics, right? But how can you make product people more successful in collaborating with SEOs? I think if you incentivize them, they will. I think there it's not that they can't interact with SEOs. It's more like in most places, product is not incentivized to work with SEO, not at all. And so, even if they are, then engineering is not incentivized. And um, for one of our clients um, who's, need to be careful how I phrased it, not reveal it, um, whose um, stock market evaluation is very much tied to the SEO visibility, um, um, where we did mainly consulting work and um, helped them fix an SEO issue and their stock price went up similarly to the SEO visibility. Um, there was actually the, uh, one of the investors 
who uh, brought us in. And suddenly there was pressure on the CEO and the CEO put pressure on the CTO. And then it was very easy to get all the SEO stuff <laughs> done. And yeah. Um, yeah, most product teams that I know, like I, I spend a lot of time like meeting other companies here in Berlin at, at meetups or just talking to people to, to learn how others are doing it. And um, SEO rarely comes up in product teams. It, it's not on their radar. And um, I don't think it's the people who, who don't want to do it. It's that management doesn't incentivize it. That's that's all. Yes, 100%. Like give, them, give them visibility or traffic or revenue from SEO or something as a KPI, and they will they will figure it out. Totally, totally. Hey, I don't want to take up your time for way too long. There's just uh, one or maybe two questions that I have. Uh, one of them being, have you, changed, have you changed your mind about something in SEO now that you're stepped out from being a practitioner mostly i think the one example i gave earlier that i realized seo success rarely depends on who's the best seo it depends on many many other things like buy-in headcounts budget etc etc alignment especially alignment um and i think that's the main thing where i changed my mind um And then I would say like 10 years ago, I have always advocated for, oh, yeah, use the structured data, show Google even better all the data you have. And nowadays I'm more like, mm, what's your long term strategic approach here? Like Google for jobs, right? Like, yeah. do you want to be one of the first movers and get some of the traffic? Or do you want to delay the point in time where Google makes you redundant? Yes. And yes. Uh, so I've become a lot more strategic in that regard um and I, i would say like 10 years ago if you had told me to do seo for a company i would have crawled the website and said oh let's change this 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 and this nowadays i would um say okay what's the plan for the quarter what's the plan for the year which of your business units makes the most um has the best roi um if, if you're selling physical goods is there is there still stuff in storage we need to get rid of like i i would um look at a lot of different factors that are completely unrelated from SEO before I could even start prioritizing SEO work. Um, and um, I also don't think that I could ever limit myself to SEO again because there are like so many use cases where I would be like, no, no, no. If you want to step in tomorrow, we do it with AdWords. We don't yeah. try to rank the landing page tomorrow. We don't waste time on it. If you're running a campaign for only two weeks, You're gonna pay for it with AdWords. There's no yeah. way we're gonna rank a landing page quickly um, on these these kinds of things, right? Um, so yeah. I, I I could only look at it holistically, including product and marketing. Otherwise, I would feel like I would get restless and <laughs> try to try to change too many things. I think there's no better note to end on than. The, the last couple of things that you said, there's so much wisdom in that. Uh, and I feel kind of there's so all these decades of your experience are included in, in that decades. quote, man. Dude, yeah, come on. Yeah, but still, <laughs> that's at least eight decades. So you, you started your SEO agency 10 years ago. <laughs> One and a half decades almost. That's, that's kind of that. Uh, but yeah, there is so much to, to gain out of that. So thank you so much for your time, Malta. Um, where can people find you? Um, where can people follow you and, and where can they stalk you? Um, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for my name, my full name, and you can find me. 
So if you like mirror selfies, you can also follow me on Instagram. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up. So, <laughs> quick, what, what's, what's the story with mirror selfies? Um, I don't know. It just randomly happened. We have this 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 mirror here in the in the stairwell at Search Metrics, and um, just for fun, I started taking pictures and using a lot of fake hashtags like uh, outfit of the day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, now it's just what what people expect. So now I, I just do a mirror selfie every day. Yeah, that's how I know you're alive and well. Is when I see yourself, <laughs> I follow you, and uh, one day we'll we'll take one together, or basically next time that I'm in Berlin. Uh, but thanks, man. Do that. Let's absolutely um, do that. One hundred percent. We'll record another session in front of the mirror with Club Mate. How about that? Uh, yeah, I'm in. Awesome. Now you're committed. <laughs> I got this recorded. Perfect. I'm absolutely dead serious. Um, and people will find out when we do this. But um, Mate, thanks so much, man. That was. Super generous of you. Um, I really respect you uh, and everything you did for the SEO community, but also sharing your wisdom. So um, thank you. Thank you very, very, very much. Um, and yeah, people, go follow Malta. Um, he drops a lot of daily wisdom and uh, selfie mirrors. There's always value in that. There's a deeper philosophy that I'm not going to explain. Uh, let's say people should until- just follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn where I post the SEO stuff. <laughs> uh, now you've got to become an Instagram influencer. I'm telling you that. I'm going to direct them all over there. Uh, but yeah, again, thanks for your time. Everybody have a nice day and talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>